0: Dear wine lovers, if you're interested in not just drinking wine, but also in investing in it, then this is the perfect podcast for you. Together with our guests, we will go into the depth of this upcoming and fast-growing asset class.
1: Every couple of weeks, we will discuss a specific topic, so you get interesting insights about how, where and why to buy wine. Not just for getting heavenly great experiences by drinking, but as well to make some profit. We are your hosts, Cheryl Huber and Remo DiMarco. Enjoy the episode.
0: We are happy to be back with our fourth episode. Today we have our friend Andi Schneider with us. He is a research specialist working for an investment boutique focusing on small and mid-caps based in Switzerland. Due to his analytical skills, wine drinking and rating seems to be made for him. With over 3,000 tasting notes, he knows how to assess the quality of wines. Together, we will find out how helpful analytical mindset can be for investing in wine. Andi, welcome to our fourth episode. Let us know how you fell into the wine barrel.
2: Hi, guys. So I came in contact with wine at a very young age, uh, probably at three or four years old already. Because I grew up in a wine growing region in in the south and part of Switzerland, and like all or many families, we had some vineyards at at that point. And so I was with my grandfather and great-grandfather. I spent some time in the vineyards and especially during harvest. So the wine culture is deeply engraved in the region that I'm coming from. And from a very young age, you get to taste some wines on holidays or other special occasions. But that's far away from the fine wine world. It's more about simple wines and you usually drink the wines you produce at home or with your own vineyards. And then fine wine came later when I moved to Zurich and met a few special people it's always about people one was my uncle who is a avid wine collector for a few decades already and he showed me some really special bottles i didn't really comprehend at that time and then others were co-worker which became friends and they showed me great restaurants and great food and with that also usually comes great wine So it was a mix of a little bit of family history and then some wine friends. And at some point you start collecting wine. And that happened for me roughly a decade ago.
1: Yeah, very nice. Thank you very much. And now we know that you have over 3,000 tasting notes. You did a lot of also vertical tastings and you have deep knowledge about different vintages, different chateaus and producers. And coming from an, an investment standpoint, to understand where to invest your money in wine you should first understand how to distinguish a mediocre wine from a, a high quality wine worth investing in what makes the difference in your opinion we know that you you use in your tasting notes the, the 100 point scale and um, what does a wine need to have to get 100 points from you
2: yeah I think that wine criticism or judging wines is highly subjective we all know that but There are a few traits, a few characteristics of a wine that are not really subjective. And so uh, a little bit of objectivity can be there in wine criticism. It's complexity of flavors and precision, uh, probably the structural frame of the wine, which can be judged in a more objective way. And then it's all about balance, but that is more subjective in the end. I use the 100 point scale because it's used a lot of people by the most influential critics these days. And because it's used on seller tracker where I put my notes in. So that's where that is coming from. A few years ago, I thought to myself that I should have a better framework of how I charge wines that's when I came up with a 15-point list for a perfect wine. And I will go through that list with you. So for me, the nose has to be expressive. The palate has to be expressive. The finish has to be expressive. We have to have high intensity. That's the first criterion. The complexity has to be high. That's the second criterion. Then uh, precision has to be high. So you, you have to be able to sense to taste the different aromas with a lot of precision and then the purity the freshness the ripeness has to be on the right level so cooked fruit is not that attractive but very fresh and pure fruit is more attractive another trait would be the ever evolving and changing aroma profile wines which have that are by definition much more interesting because you sense. And taste different aromas. And that's a trait I, I like. And then number six would be there has to be an intriguing sweetness. I like sweetness in wines and I want them to be sweet. But not too sweet. The sweetness has to be balanced by all the other aromas. And then the texture, it has to be satin like, probably slightly creamy as we say in German, but satin is probably the better word. But Yet the wine has to be airy and light, so not too much weight, not too cloying. And then the other one would be uh, the tannins. They have to be round, they have to be ripe, not green. That's quite obvious and and more objective. And the same is true also for the acidity. I like high acidity. Uh, It has to be high, but not too high. And it has to be well integrated into the wine. Uh, Same is true for the alcohol, which would be the next criterion. I don't want to sense the alcohol in a wine. I don't want to have it on the nose. I don't want to have it on the palate. And overall, there has to be great balance and harmony harmony between all the elements. The next criterion would be a long and expanding finish. And then the last three criteria are a little bit more specific. I think the wine has to be distinct if it has to be singular it has to stand out it cannot be just another one which smells like all the neighbors and all the other wines that are out there has to be a little bit special and for me in the end to achieve 100 points a wine has to create an emotional response so it can be great wine but if i'm not moved by it it will never get 100 points and in the end also i have to like the style there might be great port wine out there, but I don't like port wine. I don't like the flavors and I will never think that a port wine can be a perfect wine.
1: Yeah. You said it has to give you an emotional moment. What would you say makes the circumstances in which you drink the wine? How does that influence or where do you weight this criteria? Or do you even consider it when... Uh, scoring the wine
2: in theory it shouldn't influence the rating in reality it obviously does i mean uh, the glass you have the temperature you have in the room the people which uh, you drink the wine with the wines you had before the wines you will drink afterwards that all influences even the weather influences uh, your perception of wine i think with time and with a lot of experience you are able to Better eliminate all these factors which shouldn't influence your perception of wine or your score. But uh, lucky for me, I'm not a critic. I do the ratings for me and myself. So I don't really care if my ratings are influenced by some of these factors because I do them for me and for nobody else.
0: So then it would be as well like really interesting for people how to know which uh, wines you ever rated with 100 points and where you actually had the emotional responsiveness. <laughs> are they actually some? What, is your, what are your favorites, actually?
2: Yeah, I think I have, in the meantime, I have five or six 100-point wine in my tasting notes. Some of them were young, and I think they might have get to the 100 points because of the context of the tasting. It was one wine in a huge two-day-long 2009, 10 years on vertical of, of Bordeaux wines. And it was Chateau Margaux 2009, which is arguably one of the best wine in the vintage and also on Salatracker in general. It has a really, really high rating. So I'm not the only one there, but we had it blind and it was just a standout wine and got to this 100 points. I had it later on a few times. And didn't rate it 100 points, but always 98, 99 points. So it is truly standout. And the second one like that was Mutorocha 2010 in the same horizontal, vintage horizontal a year later. Uh, Same reasons here. It is a great wine, but probably on that day, it was only a 100 point wine because it was so much better than all the other wines we had today. And then some more special wines, some unicorns. Valentini, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo 2000, uh, just recently. An amazing wine. I never had it before, and I never had a red one of that producer before. And, and we had it blind, and it was just truly outstanding in every way. A Rioja from 1964, CVNE, really amazing. And then Amora from Domino da Romani Conti, 2015. So an eclectic mix
0: of wines. That's interesting. I mean, I think Raymond and me, we rarely gave 100 points. So we should drink more to to get there. And I think you, or we were discussing it before as well, you truly follow the, the wine critics as well by taste, right? So you have specific journalists you go after because you like how they assess the wine and how they rate it. Or do you sometimes buy as well wines because of just they got really high scores? Or how is your yeah buying strategy overall? Is it more like taste or is it sometimes as well with an investment um, standpoint behind? So I don't buy uh,
2: for investment. At least that's what I tell myself. In reality, it is probably like this, that if you think that you have a great deal in front of you that this wine is completely undervalued, you are inclined to buy it a little bit more than you wouldn't be otherwise. And you probably buy a few more bottles than you would otherwise. So it's certainly that the price and the uh, potential undervaluation certainly uh, plays a role. In the beginning, when I started collecting wines, it was a little bit different. Because I didn't have a clue about anything, but I just wanted to start collecting. And so I followed a lot of wine critics and tried to find out the wines that are generally well perceived and probably have value appreciation potential. Because I told myself that by doing that, even if my taste should evolve, even if I shouldn't like this or that wine, I can still sell it. Because it got great ratings. So in the beginning, It was certainly a little bit more investment-driven than it is today. And today I'm even listening a little bit less to the critics than I did before, if at all, because I know what I like. I know, for example, in Bordeaux, I know the Chateaux I like and those I don't really like, and uh, I buy those. But
1: I think that's a normal journey for every collector. If I understand correctly, you are saying that critic ratings influence the price of the wine. To what extent is that correct and are there critics who are more influential to the prices?
2: Yeah, I mean, we all know the influence Robert Parker had on prices, especially when he handed out a perfect score for a wine. That is no longer the case these days. So there is no other critic which has the same sway over the market as Robert Parker did in his heydays. One reason is that there are many more high-quality wines out there. The quality improved in general over the past two, three decades, and quite tremendously so. And there are just many, many more great wines out there these days. Hence, there are many more great wines with high scores out there. And there are much more critics than there were before giving out high scores. So there was... A little bit of an inflation in scores, even though I think it's, it's, it's well deserved because the quality truly improved over the past 20 years with many wines. In my opinion, the score still influenced the prices today. We've seen this many times and I can give some examples. I think Neil Martin was for quite some time or probably for some still is the heir apparent of Robert Parker, especially for Bordeaux. And I remember when he gave the Palmer 2018 perfect 100 points in the bottle, that the share price jumped 20 or 30 percent in a matter of days. So that still happens. I think with Parker in the heydays, it would have probably doubled or even more. But uh, Neil Martin still has some sway, especially in Bordeaux. And then Caloni. In Piedmont and also Champagne, and also probably Napa Valley, he influences prices a little bit. Above all, I still think that the Vine Advocate, so Parker's team, influences score the most these days. Even though the single critic is probably not as well regarded as Parker or as Neil Martin or Antonio Galloni. But because they are Parker, because they are at the Vine Doquette, they still move the market. And the Interpares here is clearly William Kelly. So in just a matter of a few short years, is now for me the best critic for Burgundy. Certainly the one with the most sway on the market. Same is true for Champagne. I mean, it was him that gave out perfect scores for Uli Scola or Eglurie or Celos, which were all well-regarded before in the community, but after he gave out perfect scores, prices just doubled and tripled
0: and quadrupled.
2: And same, same is, by the way, also true for Burgundy. I think Me, where he handed out perfect score for one white wine and then this white wine and all back vintages of the white wine I think, tripled or quadrupled. And he is now also covering Bordeaux. And I would bet that in a few years' time, not right now, but in a few years' time, he will be the most influential Bordeaux critic. I think I would predict that he will be the critic with the most influence on prices on the market as a whole since Parker, much more than everybody else.
0: So yes, there is like the the influences of the ratings for the prices, depending on who is actually rating the wine. And yes, we, we followed William Kelly, for example, as well. He's doing good work and like try as well to give a lot of knowledge behind how they produce. And he's often like posting a lot how to how everything is done. And yeah, we appreciate him. But I think what's, if I can say something to that, I think what makes him
2: very special is not only his very analytical approach and trying to give all the context around the wines and and the winemakers and also his tasting approach, but he has a clear style preference. So, two factors A, he has a clear style preference. Many, many critics, in my opinion, are too style agnostic, they judge the wine for what the wine is and uh, try to be objective about the wine, even though the consumer isn't style agnostic. Most consumers, they have a a preference. They either like big and ripe wines or they like elegant creatures. And uh, William Kelly has a clear style preference for these more elegant wines. And he's not afraid to tell us that through his course and in his notes. And same is true. Or the second reason is that he's not afraid of anybody in the industry. So he doesn't look at hierarchies or labels and is afraid to tell when something is not good. Think about him scoring many premier crus or even village wines in, in Burgundy, higher than many Grand crus, and bringing up new producers nobody wrote before and giving them among the highest scores in a particular vintage. Or think about when he goes now after Ponte Cane, so that he was disinvited from tasting the wines, for example, for the 2022 vintage. And he's not afraid to call people out if something is not right. And that's why I think that he will take over also the Bordeaux wine
0: world. So, if we take it a bit further and go a bit more into the direction of investing in wine, how can people? take the 100-point scale for an investing opportunity. Like, for example, let's say we have the Bordeaux series coming out, new vintage. Should you be just, like, acting really fast by buying before the merchants will increase prices, or what are, like, how can people use the 100-point scale to invest in wine? What would you say about that? So... Front running the market is, is really difficult.
2: It is still possible with some scores and you might get one or the other bottle here and there before the market catches up. It usually pays out if you buy early, usually, and that's okay, but you can hardly do that in quantity. So you can buy your six bottle here and there, but you can hardly buy big, big quantities at much lower rates because the market will catch up quite fast. I mean, many of the critics' platforms even offer premium subscriptions to the trade and they are revealing their scores to them prior to us consumers. So the trade might know a day or two earlier that uh, this and that wine will get a perfect score. So it's really hard to front run the market, but I still think that Especially in Bordeaux, but also same is true for Champagne, I would say, but also some other regions, not Burgundy, but in the other regions, its critic scores are are still quite valuable. If there is one particular critic that would influence the market, you could just follow him. So like everybody did with Parker for many, many years. But as there isn't, I always looked, especially in the early days, I always looked at the average Critic score. And it turns out that the average critic score is quite accurate of what the average market participant is thinking about a particular wine. That might not be that relevant for you because you don't like the style or you don't like the vintage, but it tells you what the market likes. If 16 critics agree that the best wine is wine. XYZ likelihood is high that afterwards in the market, after five and 10 years, this will be one of the top wines of the vintage. So critics certainly help here if you
1: want to invest in wine, in my opinion. Yeah, and so you were once sharing with us, coming back to the average uh, critic score, an interesting Excel sheet you did as an analyst, where you did at the end a so called buying score of the recent Bordeaux vintage. And what was interesting or what we did not understand on the first sight, was how this buying score was made or what was the formula behind it. So now we were eager to find out how you did the, the buying score, which was actually, in our opinion, quite accurate, looking back now. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, preparing for this conversation, I looked at the performance too and I was quite surprised, I have to say, that... Uh, <laughs> It really turned out to be great if you would have bought wine from an investment perspective. I even looked up some numbers, I think it was yeah, top ten average score just from the different critics for the 2016 vintage had a 38 performance in some premier. And the top ten buying score had an average performance of 46%, so an eight percent outperformance. And when I look at Livex data, the the average 2016 uh, is up these days around 10 to 15% only. So the, the model might have worked. I did the model for myself because I didn't really knew Bordeaux back then in 2015 and 16, or, or not to the extent I know these days. So I thought, and, and I didn't know the critics either. I didn't have a clear preference for one or the, or the other critic. And so I compiled a list of, I think, 15 or 16 critics, and I calculated the average score they gave to a particular wine. And then I said, okay, but this critic is not that relevant. I don't really care about what James Uplink says. So I did a weighted average score where I weighted the different scores of the different critics. So I had a second metric, the, the weighted average score. And then I thought, okay, but if I want to have some kind of security, if I don't like the wine, that I can sell it, uh, I will also have to look at some other factors. And I thought, okay, then I have to do a score where I can also factor in some other factors, which is number of maximum perfect scores, because at perfect scores, usually they sell well. So, and I did that. But then I thought, okay, perfect score from the Wine Advocate is more valuable than a perfect score from, again, James Suckling. So I did a weighted approach there too and brought it into the tasting, into the score. And then I thought, okay, maybe the critics aren't always right about their particular score level or everybody's score level could be different for one person perfect 100 points wine can never be reached. For one person, it can only be reached once. And for some, it's a plateau that can be reached many times. But at that said, what's really interesting about the critics and their judgment about a particular vintage is, what's their top 10 wines? Because that you can compare from critic to critic. And so I gave extra points for top ten positions for every critic, and then also price, of course, price is a factor. I also put through a formula I tried to look up the formula. I couldn't really understand it if, when I looked at it this week. It's a long time ago. but if the price goes above a certain level, it gets negative points and so on and so on. but so I tried to bring in a few more factors into that, and yeah, I mean, in hindsight, it worked quite well, but. If I would do something like that today, I would probably add some other factors like historical performance, price development over the past few years, some premier, because if a winery continues to increase prices every day, usually that also increases back vintages and um, seller tracker, track record of certain wines. So if, if, if the market likes the wines or not, I would add a few more things. And yeah, but you can play around with that. And also alcohol degree. I don't like too much alcohol. So if a wine goes above fourteen point five percent in Bordeaux, I would hand out negative points, which would
0: influence the score negatively. Yeah, I mean it's it's quite complex actually, but it needs to be done like with all the details and what I really appreciate and I think it's a good way to use it, is like to take a weighted average of all scores, because then you have yeah, a bit more like objective analysis about what the wine is actually worth it you were as well i saw the the sheets i'm preparing for the podcast and you were as well doing an expectation of the price rise yeah how much the wine will increase in no you didn't no <laughs> i just saw like you were expecting from the price 2019 for example for the 2020 yeah. vintage yeah, yeah how is it to understand just to well, be right yeah. there I We probably have to cut that out because it's not really interesting. But
2: I just had that in the Excel sheet because I wanted to have a complete picture before the campaign started, which are the best wines. But the prices are not yet known. But after the first releases came out, you get a sense of what average price increase we will see in the campaign. So if the first few came out at plus 20% versus the year before, I added the 20% to all the wines. and. To calculate the buying score again with this plus plus twenty percent, that's right. why I didn't
0: check price development with that. But would be an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I you mean, had to calculate we, fair value. Yeah, I I exactly. I see there is like room of a bit of improvement <laughs> if you would do it again. <laughs> um, but that's it's amazing, and I think yeah, mostly it's hard to find out what wine to buy for investment if you're like private collector. And you want to invest your money for wines, you have to really go down the way to, to find some interesting wines. Or I have another question. You mentioned the cellar tracking, cellar uh, tracker ratings. You sometimes look back because, like, it's really accurate how they rating wines now these days. Because sometimes Robert Parker or other critics are rating the wine just once or twice or maybe three times, but there are sometimes like ratings a bit older, actually. So would it be interesting to take more into account the, the ratings from Cellar Tracker? Because it's as well many people and often Seller Tracker, the people there are quite enthusiast. So it could be as well uh, interesting um, information there, no?
2: I definitely think so. Many people always say it doesn't really interest me what others say about the wine. I have to know them. I have to know their taste. And that's true. That's true. If you have a good friend or might be a wine critic and you trust his judgment and taste and you know that you have the same taste, you should follow him and not an average rating. Because, yeah, it's an average. So many different opinions and it averages out. But if you look from an investment perspective, the average rating of the market certainly is more interesting than a particular voice, which, which might be less accurate. And when you look at the most highly rated wines on Salad Tracker, it's the highly rated wines that have the best performance. Think about 9089 Bordeaux, when you look up the highest rated wines there, it's Clearly, the wines that cost a fortune these days. I think Obrio and muto Rothschild came out at the same price at that point, or not much different, probably around thirty bucks. And Obrio these days is probably the highest-rated Bordeaux ever, I think, on cellar tracker. If you take out wines with less than ten ratings or so, and cost two thousand bucks, and muto Rochat hasn't had such good ratings and got, probably cost 450, 500 bucks. So there's a clear difference. Also, when you go and look back to 2009, Margot is on top and and certainly had a better performance than some of the other first growth that year. Or look back at 2015, Margot already on Premier had probably the highest scores on average in the bottle, certainly it had. It had the best performance of all the. Let's say expensive wines, of course, also because of a special label and it has the highest score on cellar tracker. It's really an amazing wine. So I think from an investment perspective, cellar tracker is quite relevant, especially after some time. You can't predict which wine the market will like the most after some years, but That's why I said before, if I would do a model for investing, I would probably look at at Seller Tracker scores too, about how these wines have done in the past vintages, because that might be an indicator.
1: Yeah, really interesting. And I mean, over 40% performance with with your sheets without even wanting to do an investment sheet is quite impressive, Um, I have to admit. Now, maybe we got a little uh, change of subject, but as we know, we have uh, a broad and deep knowledge about uh, especially the the Bordeaux region and also, as we said before, in vertical tastings and and vintages. So our question would be, what do you think about Bordeaux in general and also like the, the most traded and most cheered vintages like 2009, 2010? Do you have, maybe there's some vintages which are undervalued? What do you think about that? So Bordeaux in general
2: isn't probably as hot these days as it was in the past. Everybody's talking about Burgundy and price escalation in Burgundy is much more pronounced than it is in Bordeaux. But I think people often forget that it's all about supply and demand in the end. And the demand side for Bordeaux is still there, I think. Probably not for the chateau number 150 to 1,000 and everything beyond that. But for the top 100 chateaus, the demand is still there. What happened and what changed in the past 30 years is that China alone probably brought four, three, four hundred million people to the middle class. The number of millionaires in the world probably is 30 times higher today than it was before and the number of bottles you can produce in a particular vineyard or region hasn't changed at all and to the contrary it usually has gone down because people focus more on quality and i want some statistic all burgundy red burgundy Grand Cru, uh, vineyards produce around 1.6 million bottles only And that compares just to the production of a few Poyac heavyweights, Muto, Lafitte, Latour, Pichot Comtesse, Pichot and Lashbosch, produced together 1.6 million bottles. And that's the same amount of Grand Cru Red wine produced in Burgundy. So I think that the much higher price escalation in Burgundy is mainly because of that. But I don't deny that the trend towards more elegant wines and towards their war-driven wines is there. But... In my opinion, that's not the main reason the Burgundy price development is much stronger than the Bordeaux. But let's talk about different vintages in Bordeaux. I think that when we talk about the past few vintages, I think 2009 was always about a lot of drinking pleasure, but many wines are drying out and dying out. Not the top wines, but many wines are drying out and dying out these days already because ripeness and extraction was just pushed to limits or beyond limits. And that didn't work out quite well. Same is a little bit true for 2010, but 2010 is fresher and has a lighter feel because it has a higher acidity and the fruit is a little bit less ripe or seems less ripe because of that. And I would think that if I would buy something out of 2009 and 2010, it would be that from an investment perspective, Both vintages are still trading at a level which is above where they should trade right now, I guess. So from an investment perspective, still not a good buy and prices came down since on Premier, So you haven't earned any money with that. And then looking at the past few vintages, 2015 has a little bit of a bad rap as being too ripe. I didn't think so when I tasted them and I tasted them many times it didn't feel too ripe for me especially compared to 2009 and also 2010. When I look at the price development, they are trading on the level of the 2016s right now. And so they are probably not outperforming from now on. They are, will get better and better. And with that, prices will increase. With age, prices will increase a little bit. But I don't see the outperformance. They're, they already made the outperformance. When I said before that the 2016. On average, the 10, 15%. The 2015s probably did 35 to 40% since on Primer. So that, that's already done. 2018, too ripe. Prices are too high. And I don't think it will be as long lived and well loved as 16 or 19 or 20. So that's vintage to short. If you could do that in wine. I would do that then.
0: And then probably the last... How how can we short the wine, actually? Do (laughs) you have some ideas? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ask William Kelly. He will short it.
2: (laughs) Then let's talk about 19 and 20. Everybody loves 19 and says 19 is better. Also, most critics have that view. My view is different. I think 20 is better than 19 because I think 19 is a little bit riper than 20. And... 20 is fresher, more elegant. And I think that's what the market wants in the end. And 19 had a good performance. But when you look at the prices, I still think from an investment perspective, there is some potential versus 16 and 15 and 18, obviously. But I think 20 will ultimately be the better vintage. And then last but not least, 22. I haven't tasted them. But when you look at the prices, they are in many cases priced above all the back vintages and the market will need time to digest that. I don't see much performance. And I think many, even great wines, like mm-hmm. probably Fischer 2022, they will be available for a long time for that same price or even below the, the initial on-premier price.
1: Yeah, and um, talking about on-premier 2022, I mean, the price release was, I think, above 15% above the on-premier 2021. What do you think about this development in the on-premier campaign um, that the producers are just raising the prices, uh, even in a circumstance, overall economic circumstance, which is not really great at this moment? I mean, we see it uh, critically, but yeah.
2: I mean, the economic environment doesn't seem... That's great, but it's actually quite great. I mean, we have record low unemployment in the US and in Europe, so it's not that bad. We have inflation, yes. And some people are suffering because of that, especially lower incomes. The wine buyers, the Bordeaux and Premier buyers, they're not suffering. They have still quite a great time, still a party going on. And not sure how long that will last, but that's not the problem. The thing is they always increase prices and that's a fair fair point. But Bordeaux over the past, let's say probably 15 years since the 2008 vintage, they didn't leave much room for on-premier buyers. And they forgot that these people are taking all the risk off their hands and injecting cash in their businesses two years before they get the product and probably 25 years before that product Reaches its peak. So you have to give the consumer something in return. And that in the past was usually a good price. But when you look back, the performance for the wines you bought on a primer is usually not that good. I mean, the 16s you could buy, I think, four years later, even though it's a great vintage and got great scores and people like it. I like it a lot. And you could buy the same wines for the same price or even 10 bucks less. two and three and four years later. Not much price performance going on there. And same was true for many other vintages. 2019 was an exception with COVID hitting and everything. But uh, 2020 and 2022 is is the same. So I don't think it's that wise. And I fear that they will break the system at one point and will have to sell through different channels and to, to different people. But yeah. It works for them still, but it's
0: not that sustainable in my opinion. Yeah, it could be like you mentioned 2009 and 2010, that there actually was a negative performance since the releases, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a possibility to have it as well with 2020 and 2022, actually, because it's as well high priced and not much going on, but yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. But we but we don't have to forget that 2009 and 10 have been released at a much higher price than the 2022s in most cases. I mean there are some some exceptions for that, but I'm not sure what the price for Godes was in 2022. But probably around 200 ish, mm-hmm. I would say. The 2016 was 160, and then so probably 200 for the 2022. And the 2009 was released above 300, yeah. so massively more. And yeah. the first growth were above 1,000, and they were released now at high 500s or low six hundred, as Swiss Frank, that is. So uh, there is a difference in level. And that's why the 2009s and 10 are still below that. And the 2022, they were priced above 2020, 19, 18, 16, 15. That is not the wisest decision because you give incentive to the consumer to buy these older vintages where you have to wait seven years less
0: before they reach their peak. And that shouldn't be the case,
2: especially if the quality in the vintage seven years ago was already good.
0: So is this like as well an investment opportunity actually to buy all the vintages if you see new vintages are released with higher prices? Do you think so? Or is it more a risk then? To that.
2: Yeah, I think that that would be an investment strategy. And I think a lot of people are doing that, not even for investments, but just for their own consumption. When a winery increases their prices every year or increases the prices to a new level, that usually over time also brings up the back vintages. And you can see that with, for example, one of the rising stars right now, which is Carmo Brio. Huge investments done since 2012, and the wine improved tremendously in quality. The first few critics saw that, and who pointed it out, was mainly Jean-Marc Gorin and Jeff Lee with the 2016 vintage. Both of them gave the wine a perfect score, or a potential perfect score on Premier. And many people at that point didn't even knew the name of the chateau. Of course, it's there for a long time, but it wasn't that renowned. What happened then, uh, the wine was released at roughly 80 bucks. And what happened then, it started around 120, so directly higher. But it stayed there for many, many years. And then with 2020, Galoni gave the wine a perfect in the bottle score. First, I would call it major, major critic with perfect score for this wine. And then with 2022, the Wine Advocate gave it 99 to 100 points, one of the top three wines of the vintage on Premier. And I think that they they probably will hand out the perfect score once once the wine is in bottle, and the prices increase, ex chateau prices increase, but also the market prices increase. And only with these new scores coming in and with release prices getting higher and higher, the back. Vintages 2016, but also 2015 and 14, started to performing really well. I think that 2016 now doubled since on Premier. But I think two or three years after the on Premier, it was still roughly the same 120 bucks, which is above release, but same price as on day one during the campaign. And only with the next vintages coming in high and with prices increasing and increasing, uh, also these back vintages perform. So it might be a good strategy to look at back vintages. One opportunity probably Chateau Fijac gets a great score for the 2022 uh, is promoted to Grand Club I don't know who gives a shit about these classifications these days, but they obviously do and they increase price tremendously. I mean, it came out at 320 Swiss francs or something like that. The 2015 was 135 bucks, so it's times 2.5. And the 2015 got several 100 points, several perfect scores, 16 as well, and also 18 got really high scores, 19 got high scores, the 20 got recently perfect score from William Kelly. So there are many vintages out there which are considerably cheaper than this 320-2022 release. So buying these old uh, releases certainly makes sense. And by the way, I think Fishak is one of the best shuttles these days on the right bank and worth buying. I don't think particularly that 320 is completely overvalued versus its quality. It will grow into that. But with so much stock out there for 2015 to 2020, the release
0: price was just bonkers if you're like looking into the future and discussing about buying all the vintages because like they're already a bit evolved and you have like aroma profile there would it be a risks like for Bordeaux in like say 10 20 or 30 years with the climate change that if you take it from an investment strategy to buy Now, a lot because the ripeness will be just too much. Or do you have anything to say about that? Because Mm. now you can just buy all the vintages like from 2015 to 2022. Seems to be great there. And maybe in 20 years, they, they struggle to produce fresh wines with nice acidity. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. And after I
2: bought the 2016 vintage or during the 2016 on Premier campaign, I thought to myself, I have to buy a little bit more than. I should, you always do that as a wine collector, but I thought I should buy extra, extra more today because it's probably the last fresh vintage we will see for a long time. So I had the same exact, exact same feeling. The thing is, when you look at the wines produced in 2020 or also 2022, which 2022, we all know it was a really, really hot summer, the wineries are adapting fast really really fast they use technology and new techniques to adapt to the heat and i heard about i think it was carmobrio and Cheval Nowich which used sunscreen on their grapes during summer sunscreen <laughs> not the sunscreen we use but some kind of sunscreen to protect the grapes from becoming too ripe too fast and uh, there are many other techniques we can uh, see that with carmobrio They are produced in directly next to Obrio and Missio Obrio, but they try to bring the alcohol down. They they try to bring the ripeness down. Obrio 2022 was 15% of alcohol and Carmo Obrio just next door was 13.3, 13.4, something like that. Mm -hmm. So huge difference. You can do a lot with technology and. Uh, vineyard and winemaking choices and that's why I think and also they always also say that also the wines itself in the vineyards they adapt to climate change yeah. so I don't think that 2016 will have been the last fresh vintage and I'm not sure if you should buy
0: because of that so if we have like some people to to listen and want to buy some specific wines for investment perspective, or just to gain some money over time, do you have something in mind? We heard a lot about the guy Oprio, Fijac as well. Do you have some rising stars in mind? We should put there a disclaimer: we don't buy it because of that. But <laughs> I do, <laughs> just to give people some possibility to buy good stuff.
2: Yes, I mean. Carmobrio or Fishok are hardly uh, surprises. And so it's the next name that comes to mind, and that is Shotokano. Back in 2015, they got great ratings for the first time, and the market started to look at it. And it's all because, like with Fishok, like with Carmobrio, it's all because of huge investments done in the years and probably decades earlier, but especially in the years before that. For me, Gano is today the most floral and S most elegant right bank wine out there. With this special texture, I just really love it. And I still think even though it doesn't sell anymore at 80, 85 bucks, like the 2015 vintage, which nowadays trades at 250, also almost triple. But at 150, like the 2022, it's still completely undervalued in my opinion. I really like Gano and would still buy it. And then we talked about Carm and Fischak. I also think Vio Chateau Serca, when you look at how the wine got scored by the critics and also how it is performing on sell tracker, So in the market, it's among the top 10 wines in Bordeaux over the past few years. It's better than Petrus. And Price increases reflect that, so it's no longer cheap, it's quite expensive these days. But I still think that they are heading up to the five, six, seven hundred bucks where Char- Cheval Blanc trades and those on are, are trading. It's not particularly mine I like that much. For me it's it's a little bit too ripe in many years. But I still still think that. They are on a roll and probably will benefit from that in the long run. And then some other names which come to mind are Rosan also owned by the same people as Chattocano. And, and they are investing also heavily there. And it's also a really elegant wine. Uh, doesn't have the same great air war. Segur comes to mind. A little bit too ripe for me, but uh, they are on an upward trajectory. Bichol Holland had very difficult years between 1990 and 2009, I would say. But nowadays, it's among the very best wines. It gets more expensive every year, but still has some potential, I think. And then there are also some that are probably overvalued. Which are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, it's always difficult to say, but everything that is too ripe these days isn't in fashion. And I think when, for anybody who had bought Chateau Pavi over the past 15 years, yeah. you probably didn't have a good return uh, because the market doesn't really like it that much. So, I mean, I'm not telling any secrets here. Look at the performance of Chateau Nifty pop. I mean, there is no performance in Chateau Nifty pop. So even though there are great wines, but it's not the style that is in fashion these days and, and the market uh, doesn't like it that much. There are other wines like that, like Pepe Fougère, which is rather Napa-esque in, in in his style, so that is not performing as well, too. And then then probably some predictions here. You certainly heard what William Kelly said about Bontekane. Bonte mm. And... I think if they are not turning around the ship, they will suffer heavily. Because it's not just the style choice they take, which is not right, like with Chateau Pavi, but they obviously have some problems. And I'm not sure if you have tasted the 2020, but it's really not a good wine. And one other thing I mentioned before, this could also be... a kind of a bold prediction but when you look at Obrio and Viseo Obrio, they are so ripe and especially alcoholic these days that I doubt that they will match the performance of the other first group and if they are not changing anything, I think they won't be a good performers from now on. At least I don't buy them anymore.
1: But um, if I recall correctly, Leo Villascar was two or three times in a row top five in your Excel sheet with the buying score. I would wonder what's your take on that Chateau, because it's always in the perception, at least in my perception, it was also a rising star in the Bordeaux region. What do you think about that?
2: That's true. Uh, It always got amazingly high scores and was well loved by the critics. And the price performance really isn't there to match that when you compare it with other wines. In the same vicinity, in terms of critics' scores or critics' perception. It's really difficult to say why. My opinion is that Leo Velasquez historically needed decades to, to be ready. And so I think not many people had that many great experiences with Leo And I open some young Leo Velasquez these days. Uh, The 2016 in the Arivash tastings was amazing in terms of complexity, in terms of purity and precision. So I I totally got the high scores. It got from left and right. But it's not an open and ready wine these days. And then you open a, a charming Margot wine or right bank wine with a lot of Merlot. And they are open and singing for many years already young. Leo Villoscas isn't really that. And that's probably why the performance isn't there yet. If in 20 or 30 years, he lives up to all the promises and gets these perfect scores, then once it's mature and open, the prices will rise. But it's not a wine you open, drink, and say to your friends, okay, I have to buy an additional 12 bottles. Because, Mm. Yeah. But but that's just speculation. If you just look at the scores and the model and so, you should buy
0: Mm -hmm. the Velascos. but yeah. It's not one of the good performers. We we really got down to the shuttles now. (laughs) Um, I think we can wrap up. Do you have anything to add for the moment? Something we missed to hit? Because we prepared as well some rapid fire questions for you. (laughs) <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to, to have like more private or yeah what's your taste what you like yeah for example uh, yeah. let's start off with you can say one or the other or if you want to add you can add but just go through it quickly what's your preference Bordeaux or Pino so, so that's an interesting... what's your preference overall you prefer Bordeaux or Pino
2: so I drink more Bordeaux I have more Bordeaux but I think In the long run, I prefer Pinot and already these days. It's more often than not Pinot
0: Noir. 2010 or 2009? 2010. Champagne always at the beginning? Yes,
2: and at the end and also before and after and in between.
0: It's always great. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Do
0: you prefer Krug or Dom Perignon? I would say Dom Perignon. Why?
2: I had it more, and I had more really aged vintages, and it's just amazing. The value for money is still better than with croup. but I had some amazing crux, so they are both great. It's probably split by a hair. What's your favorite wine over the past year? <laughs> or Let's say this year, 2023. <laughs> there were so many great wines. If I could mention the top three, was... Uh, so so Heights Martha's Vineyard, 1978, Schaefer, 1978, so two great wines there. Then Valentini 2000, as I said before, then a Grange, 1983. So you see quite eclectic weather, not Bordeaux, not Burgundy. Is there a wine you want to drink before you die? Oh yeah, I have a bucket list. I think there are probably 80 wines now on this bucket list that I really want to drink. Some of them I have in my cellars, some I get to drink at some point. Uh, number one on the list is the 1961 Hermitage La Chapelle.
1: So uh, I think we are at the end of uh, the fourth episode. Andy, thank you very, very much for being our guest in this episode and giving so many insights about vintages, uh, chateaus, and investment advices without being real investment advices so yeah thank you very much yeah that's it thank you guys thank you if you liked our episode please like rate and share our podcast with people who love to drink and buy wine your hosts sharon huber and tremo di marco welcome you soon to the next episode of the wine investment podcast and as always you better buy wine because you can't drink stocks